Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Glad you could join me. We've got a great show in store for you today. Learn a little bit about dog food and the dog food industry. Yeah, you know it's complicated. So Carl Gunsner will join us later in the podcast. He's from Purina. Dog man, trainer, hunter, as well as a, well, I'll just call him a dog food expert. So looking forward to that. And then how about on the bird hunting gear and the dog training gear side, Terry Wilson will join us from Ugly Dog Hunting Company. We'll learn what's new in that industry and uh, maybe a few bits of advice on Terry's extensive roughed grouse hunting experience. So stick around for that. We've got a lot more in store for you beyond that. Our social media focus is all about whether you shoot a limit or not. You know, that's one of the discussions we had recently, and I was frankly a little bit surprised at the answers, and I think you will be as well. And then we're going down to Nevada in our road trip, our public access tip, so stick around. What you been up to? Well, it looks like training is the high point of the day for everybody. Had a good chat around last night at our NAVDA chapter banquet. Good to see everybody. You know, we've trained together, we've had some events together, but thanks to the good old COVID pandemic, we haven't had a banquet for a while. So uh, congratulations, Tiffany, and all the other officers who put that together. I know it's not easy and had a great time there. Interesting to see some folks I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, we're all going a little bit more gray, but you know, this is a chapter made up of chucker hunters. So nobody's putting on the pounds that you might think they would as they're putting on the years. There's another argument for going hunting right there. Um, talked a lot about my television show, so just to answer all those questions, yes, we're on the air. It's a network called Outdoor America. Now, you may not know it from that. Check your local listings. We're on 110 local television stations around the country and then streaming on Samsung smart TVs and a whole bunch of other smart TVs as well. So keep your eyes peeled for wing shooting USA there and on seven regional sports networks. Thanks for watching and please feel free to give some feedback to your station once you do watch it. If you like the show, that is. And if you do like this show, it's made possible thanks to the generous contributions. Well, the investment, I like to think by Roughland Performance Kennels, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. Thank you again, Dave and Vandy and Chris Greenwood for your hospitality last week. The Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota. It's all made possible thanks to those kind contributors. Well, uh, you love them and you hate them. The Bureau of Land Management is one of those, <clears throat> well, they used to call them the government's caretaker. They would uh, basically get all the defaulted homesteads and the land that nobody else wanted when a territory became a state. So uh, they've got a, you know, a, a big challenge ahead of them. A lot of that stuff is, you know, less than ideal for much of anything. That's why the homesteaders failed. But their loss is our gain. <clears throat> BLM administers a whole bunch of great hunting territory. In quail habitat, one of my favorite places, Nevada. Check out the tracts near Tombstone if you're looking for scalies and gambles, say late in the season when it's cold everywhere else. 
And then uh, the shoreline at Lake Havasu, also a prime gambles hangout. Just get the paper map or even online, find the big yellow blotches on your map and have at them. Be safe. Enjoy yourself. In this part of the podcast is brought to you by midvalleyclays.com. As you know from last week's podcast, uh, there's also instruction and a whole bunch of great guns. If you're looking for an auto loader, like my buddy Tom, who took a lesson while we were out there, they have them. An incredible selection, an incredible gun room. So take a look at what they've got when you can't find it anywhere else. If you're looking for a Browning, and you should, Take a look at the new Maxxis 2 line if you would like a lighter weight gun, real easy to load and unload. It's very reliable. The stock is adjustable. The Browning Maxxis 2 line is available at midvalleyclays.com. You know, quite often, if you can't find it anywhere else, it might be sitting in the gun room at midvalleyclays.com or if not, they can probably find it when nobody else can. Get all the details and browse their selection, including the Browning Maxis 2 line, at midvalleyclays.com. And I hope to see you soon in my favorite place, Huron, South Dakota, the Ringneck Nation. For more information and a free information package, yeah, hard copies of all this stuff, just in case. I love having mine handy in the truck. Go to hunthuronsd.com. In addition to the Ringneck Festival and Bird Dog Challenge a little bit later in the season, there's 124,000 acres of public access that I'll be taking advantage of with some of you in our Fur Feathers Friends Gathering coming up in late October. All the information is free. Just go to hunthuronsd.com and scroll down, click on that uh, box and fill it in and you will get all of that information in a timely manner so that you can come to Huron as well. Usually I see him at something like a NAVDA conference or a Pheasants Forever event. Uh, Terry Wilson is the founder of Ugly Dog Hunting Company. Yeah, we're going to start with that part of it, but a good friend of mine, we've worked together on several television projects over the years, a very strong NAVDA supporter. Terry Wilson from somewhere up there in the Northeast Kingdom, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Hi, Scott. Good morning. It is, and uh, we're getting closer and closer to rough grouse season. Uh, how you? Uh, how's the population looking up there? Well, it's a little, a uh, little down this year. Uh, Woodcock should be fine, um, but it depends on where you are. I mean, we're in Maine. Uh, uh, there are good pockets of birds up there. Northern Vermont, uh, where we are in the Champlain Valley, uh, it's okay. But uh, we only have just a little less than two months to grow season. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and, you know, you bring up an interesting point. Is is this your personal observations and your friends, or does, does, does somebody actually do something to count birds out your way? Uh, we don't, uh, as far as I know, we don't do active drummer counts anymore. Yeah. Uh, but these are just personal 
you know, personal observations. Sounds like you got so, the field the field testing crew in the background there. Yeah, that's that's River. Oh, love <laughs> it. So so let let let's jump to that stuff because you know I've met many of your dogs over the years, and and if anybody watches the Wing Shooting USA TV show, they've seen many of your dogs and and Nancy, your wife's dogs as well. Uh, what's the latest um, uh, dog inventory at Ugly Dog Hunting Company these days? Well, currently right now we have uh, River. She's the youngest. She's three years old. We have Rudder. She's uh, another ugly dog, and she's 11. And we have Prairie. I don't know if you ever met Prairie. Nope, uh, nope. And uh, that's Nancy's dog. She's five. And then we have the old Scratch. He's uh, pushing 13, so he's still trucking along. Wow. So that's the inventory right now. Uh, you know, that's uh, I'm so glad to hear that. Scratch, have, of course, has a soft spot in my heart uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. I've written about him for Outdoor Life magazine and a few other places he's end up as well and hunted with him after some incredible recoveries. Won't bore anybody with the details, but uh, somewhere on my website, I think you can read some of that. Um, y- you know, there's a lot of places to buy gear for bird hunting and bird dogs, and you decided to get into that business. But let's start before that. What, give me a little bit of your background and then how you ended up with the Ugly Dog Hunting Company. Well, I can give you the – you want the short, the short end of it? The short uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not writing your biography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's kind of it's, – it's, it's really short. Um, before I got into Navda and things like that, uh, I had uh, another business, and uh, which I sold, and I was, I think I was 50 years old, and I said to Nancy, I said, I'm going to retire, and she says, no, you're not, <laughs> and uh, so at that time, we were building our house in the, the middle of uh, some great grouse cover in Vermont, so I figured I'd take a year off and build the house, help build the house, well, anyway... When that uh, ended, uh, she said, you've got to find something to do. Well, about that time, we had, I had purchased a, from a knob to breeder, uh, Scrub, who used the, actually the, um, uh, you still see his, his mm-hmm. he's on the logo. So he was the official sports person. And, you know, we started calling him Ugly Dog. And so one night we were sitting around and uh, uh, having an adult beverage, and uh, this, this idea came up uh, that we'd started, you know, small wing shooting uh, Upland uh, Hunting Company, and we name it Ugly Dog, you know, with the hope of creating a niche. So it really started out to be a hobby, <laughs> and um, and the way I operate, things start out to be a hobby, but then I jump into it all fours, and off we go. So here we are, roughly 21 years later, um, you know, and uh, so we're solidly entrenched in the wing shooting business, although we don't get much into waterfowl, it's primarily Upland. Yeah, but you know, you're and you're a prime example. Um, a lot of versatile dog owners um, will shoot a duck or a goose every once in a while, or a snipe. I was talking with somebody about snipe and rail hunting yesterday. Uh, so, so y- y- you do that as well, don't you? Uh, I do a lot of uh, waterfowl hunting. Yes, that's true. Uh, uh, a lot of the waterfowl hunting is done on our Lake Champlain here, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. we generally hunt later season. Uh, that's when we separate the men from the boys. Oh, yeah. It's not for the faint of heart late season hunting on Lake Champlain. So we're usually hunting the golden eyes or whistlers, if you'd have to call them that. Yeah. And, you know, late season mallards and, and blacks. Uh, but, yeah, we do quite a bit of uh, wing shooting on the lake. 
and uh, you know, we generally hunt out of boats, which are the floating blinds, and we're hunting on the big waters of Lake Champlain. And uh, so this, is, but with the versatile dogs, they've shown uh, they should, they've shown uh, they're great out there. I mean, uh, you know, they're uh, they've never they've never skipped a beat. Uh, I think you hunted with Tank before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he's gone now, but he was an incredible waterfowl hunter. In fact, I think he'd rather do that than upland hunt. And uh, we have the new one coming along river. Um, she'd rather waterfowl hunt herself. So it's it's kind of being passed on. But and but of course we do a lot of upland hunting too. Yeah, let's but, talk a little bit about that. I have a feeling um, your physical location uh, has a lot to do with what you really like to do out there. If your feet are dry when you're hunting, what are you chasing? That could be grouse, mm-hmm. <laughs> or may they may not be dry either. <laughs> yeah, that's that, you're right. Yeah, I, I am generalizing. You know, I live in the desert though, so that's <laughs> yeah. Well, we run into that. We generally, if the feet are dry or semi-dry, yeah. hunting grouse yeah. or and or woodcock. Um, I, I personally like the woodcock. It's a lot more fun. Uh, you you tend to get more bird contacts that way with dogs. Yeah, and uh, particularly if you get into flights. And in in Vermont, we uh, we get the flights, and when they come in, it's uh, you know it's a great time. Uh, you go out and have a lot of bird contacts, um, not necessarily killing all the birds, but uh, and but it's great dog work. So yeah, and then we do a fair amount of traveling too. We mm-hmm. you know I have been known to chase the roosters out in South Dakota, and uh, and um, also you know we do a fair amount of hunting down in Georgia which you've been on a couple of trips. Right. There, so. Yeah. Always. And, uh, so we, go ahead. Well, always a good time. And, uh, but, um, you know, in particular, the, the grouse thing, you, you know, I remember you, you one day called and said, you should do a grouse show. And I, you know, agonized over that for years. I'd seen other people try to do it, and they couldn't do a very good job of it. And for the obvious reasons, you know, there's no blue sky to show, you know, a bird against. And the camera guys freak out. But you finally convinced me, or I convinced myself, maybe both, you're a pretty good lobbyist, to to call it a, you know, a, a woodcock show instead. And we ended up shooting grouse and had a wonderful time, and uh, and we supported uh, the Rough Grouse Society at the same time, and it was wonderful. But y- y- you mentioned again just now t- uh, timber doodles as being your favorite of the two out there. W- what is it about them that uh, that puts them uh, higher on the list than rough grouse? Well, I would say one thing is that particularly if you have a younger dog. Uh, they hold very well for a young dog, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of times you can get more than one shoot, shooting opportunity mm-hmm. uh, because you know. Again, if you get into flight birds, they don't fly long distances. Um, but if you get into the when you hunt the local birds, they will take off and fly a good long ways. But when you get into flight birds, they may only fly 50, 60 yards. So you know, in, in essence, it's good hunting, but uh, it's also great dog training too because it's uh, particularly with young dogs. And uh, so although I've noticed, uh, it's, it's maybe crazy, but uh, uh, me and my diehard woodcock hunters um, have noticed over the last 20 years, uh, as crazy it may seem, that woodcock now are running. And uh, I think maybe there's some genetics, genetics going on here mm-hmm. because the old times you never saw woodcock run. They stayed put and that was it. 
But now a lot of times they'll run, and I've seen I've seen my dogs have to relocate relocate on a woodcock four or five times before we can pin them down. You, so you, it's kind of interesting. It is. But it's it, just a, it, it, it is a challenge. I mean, I I mean, you know, basically, you know, woodcocks generally only fly as high as their cover. Oh. So you may have a split second to shoot at one, you know, and that's it. So. Yeah, and we'll talk about my trophy alder branches in a minute. Speaking of that, but but um, yeah, yeah, immortalized on television too. But um, you know that that idea of a bird adjusting to the pressure by learning to run instead of fly is what a lot of old timers will tell you about pheasants in the Midwest. Have you ever heard that? Um, no, I have not. But uh, so they're saying they're running more now. We shot all the birds who fly, and so the ones who reproduce are the ones who run and live to tell about it. Yeah, believe me, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but, you know, you got, before you got into versatile dogs, you were into uh, some other breeds, weren't you? Yes, I had, uh, I, I hunted with uh, Labs and Chessies. Yeah. And, uh, but again, um, I primed before I got into, you know, uh, the series upland. Uh, typically, I, um, you know, was more of a waterfowl hunter, and you know, upland hunting was kind of like, hey, I'm bored today. Let's take the lab out or the chessie out, and see if we can, see if we can run up a grouse or two or find a woodcock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but it was actually, ironically, it was, uh, it was my wife that really got me into the pointing dogs and the versatile dogs, if you can believe it. Uh, yeah, well, just the polar opposite of around here at our house, but that's a story for, well, that's a story for the back page of Gundog Magazine, I think next month, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> so, so watch for that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, um, so think back, Terry, you've had some incredible hunts over the years. I've been able to share some of them with you and they've all been wonderful. Um, tell me about one of your favorite hunts of the last few years. Are you talking about a hunt or, or, or a memorable moment? I, I guess that would make a hunt, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would. Uh, okay, this is one that I'd like to share with the listeners. Uh, a few years back, I had um, had a serious injury to my leg, okay? Mm-hmm. And it was long coming back. It it was a very serious injury. required major surgery, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I won't go into the details. But anyway, making a long story short, it was grouse and woodcock season, and I could barely walk. So Nancy said, well, let's do something. Let's see if we can get you out there and hunt. So we took my young dog, River, and we rode up to a cover in the back piece of our property. And we got out, and I was able to hobble around. I had the shotgun, and I was hobbling around. Uh, Not getting around very well, I might add. So my wife was carrying a shotgun. She was backing me up. And River went on point, okay, and the bird came up, and Nancy shot it. Probably sailed maybe 150 yards before it went down sent river and she picked it up and that's probably one of my most memorable hunts though is able wow. to get back out and wow. do it again and have a young dog do that kind of work but you know there have been a lot of other memorable hunts too but that's that's just one you know and i can relate to that one only in that um i remember having some work done as well and being able to finally walk through a uh, in my case it was a field in south dakota for the first time in a long dang time so i'm right. glad glad you had a lovely wife along with you and a great dog as well um wish i um wish i was there for it but uh, we've had we've shared some good times we did that rough grouse oh, yeah. uh, the national hunt up in 
I always confuse. Is that a Great Falls in Minnesota as well? No, Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids, yeah. Grand Rapids, uh, Minnesota. Wonderful hunt there. Um, learned all about ticks while I was up there. Well, you did. <laughs> and then down south in some of those places we've been to. And then, of course, you know, you've been active in so many groups from the Rough Grouse Society to NAVDA and who knows what else. But um, you made it possible for us to come to the NAVDA Invitational Test a few years back, which is still the right. most popular television show I've ever produced. And um, thank you. And, and I think everybody in NAVDA, NAVDA needs to thank you for the incredible job you did. Right making that available to people who maybe have never heard of the, the 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 organization before so keep up the good work but you've got some other good works going as well tell me a little bit about your track chair effort track to wing yeah uh yeah well it was a this is, this is actually started um in the beginning of the pandemic and we were we were just looking to uh help people out and one of our big things was you know, I realize there are a lot of people out there that um, that had, you know, mobility issues. And, you know, they lost their ability to get out and hunt, train dogs, um, fish, waterfowl hunt, whatever. They just lost their ability because it was, just such a, it was just such a horrible thing to get out there. I mean, people would have to literally carry people out or push a wheelchair through the mud and whatnot. And then a couple of years prior to that, I had been at the SHOT Show, and I would looked at a um, uh, the company out there that was producing them, uh, and they, and it, I was, I was, I was just amazed by this machine. It was basically a, you know, a four hundred pound tank. Yeah, on, on, literally. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. <laughs> and where it could go, and how you, and how maneuverable it was, and and we got to thinking, you know, um, let's see if we can do something with this. Let's see. Because they know there was a lot of other groups out there that do work for veterans, and but they, a lot of people were excluded because they were not veterans. And uh, although we don't exclude anybody, uh, regardless of uh, of your financial ability or anything like that, it has nothing to do with it. But anyway, um, so we decided we try it. And so what we did was we we got together with NABDA, and uh, they agreed to help us only only from a um, you know, just just to get the word out. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it got matched, mentioned it, not to test, and uh, there was articles written in the magazine and uh, things like that. So anyway, it kind of one thing led to another, and I think to date, we've managed to place, in the last three years, I think, uh, almost 40, 35 track chairs. Wow. In individuals uh, across the United States. All of these people had various disabilities. Uh, it runs the full gamut. And a lot of them, uh, there's a couple that are NAVDA members, active NAVDA, mm -hmm. NAVDA members. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, it's been a life-changing uh, for these people. I can't tell you how, how wonderful it is to see this, you know, see them get out in the field again. And, uh, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, these people that you know, write us letters and say, well, you know, we went, I went pheasant hunting in South Dakota. I hadn't been there. I thought I'd never go again, yeah. you know. And it's just, it's just, it's, I think we get more out of it than they do, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad for you uh, to get something out of it. You're doing an incredible job there. And, and if somebody wants to learn more about that in particular, how do they get more information from you? Uh, they can actually, um, 
they can email email me at Ugly Dog Hunting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, then I can because we don't have a website per se. Right, right. Uh, we we elected not to do that because mm-hmm. we want to keep this simple, and um, so they yeah, you can reach me at uh, Terry at UglyDogHunting.com, and I'd be more than happy to give them more information and, and give them applications. There Our you. application period runs from January 1 to March 31st. Well, and, it, uh, it's coming right so up. So the time is fortuitous. So yeah, you know. it is. So start thinking about that if you know somebody who might be in need. Um, that is Terry Wilson, the founder of UglyDogHunting.com. I'm Scott Linden. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. One of the many things you're doing out there, Terry, that I just I really admire and, and keep up the good work on that. We, we really haven't talked about the state of the dog gear industry, but that is uh, one of the premises for having you on the program today. So let's just take a look. I mean, we've had a pandemic. We've had a lot of people who have, you know, it's gone both ways. A lot of people pulled in their horns and didn't do anything for a couple of years. I talked earlier in the podcast about finally we had our Navda chapter banquet last night, you know, um, but other people have, have pulled out the stops and gone over the top participating in outdoor sports what's the story in the dog gear and the wing shooting industry per se what did you see happening on 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 your level well i found that uh, i was very concerned when the pandemic arrived but uh, i found that actually our sales increased yeah yeah <laughs> and, uh, yep. you know they were up like 20 percent uh, both years this year they're still up although we're seeing a little flattening uh, one of the problems where we're seeing a little flattening right now is just supply chain issues. Sure. It's very difficult to get product, and the lead times are stretching out, and uh, and it's, it's very frustrating because uh, there's, there's the, the, the dog training market and the hunting wing shooting market is strong. People are getting back out. I mean, and this is what we found. Uh, people went back. They, they, people bought puppies during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they bought hunting dogs. Well, you buy a hunting dog, you need gear, you know? And uh, so it's it's been, actually, if it's anything, the pandemic had a silver lining with the wing shooting industry. I think it was the sales were increased. Um, but um, it's, you know, we find that, that it's very true, particularly in the, in the market related directly to the dogs, the bumpers, uh, retriever trainers, uh, dog vests, uh, collars, uh, right down, you know, everything. Everything you know, you need to train your dog. We found the sales have been very strong there. Yeah, I, be, I believe it. Uh, you know, you just looked, you know, if you're just an independent outside observer, you, you could make some pretty wild ass guesses and get to a lot of that. Our, uh, you know, I, I ask every year on a, in an extensive survey that I put out, you know, what are you going to buy this year? And there's a long list. In fact, it's too long. I promise everybody who responds to that, I'll make it shorter this year. But what are the, what are the biggest, most popular categories for you at Ugly Dog Hunting? Anything that's related to dog training. Anything. Uh, yeah, anything that's related to dog training wow. is very popular. And also, you know, hunting. Uh, you know, we do. A, you know, we sell a lot of dog vests. Uh, uh, you know, you know, for you know, tummy savers to mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, to you know, to visibility vests and things like that. We even have a, believe it or not, we came out a few years ago with a uh, 
which is a snake-proof vest uh, wow. made out of turtle skin. And I, we saw a lot of those. So that's a very pricey item. But there are a lot of people that hunt out west that uh, they're hunting with snakes. So, you know, it's a... Um, it's it's amazing product, and uh, we help we helped uh, Warwick Mills. Uh, we worked with them a little bit and sizing and things like that, and a few items like that. So the areas like that, and they had obviously had the had the material. It's a great vest. Oh yeah, but it's not for everybody. I, I so, imagine it's uh, yeah, it's a little bit heavy duty and maybe a little warm oh, at times, but. Um, yeah, a little bit, but it's also a little pricey, too, yeah, yeah. for the average upland hunter. So. Well, how about some of the stuff that's not quite as pricey? What are some of, some of the newer, more exciting things you see uh, coming down the pike that you're either getting in stock or hoping to get in stock if the supply chain cooperates? Well, you know, really, the uh, upland industry does, I mean, the dog training industry doesn't change that much yeah. year to year. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's just so many things you can do. Uh, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of changes going on in the, in the, uh, e-collar market, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been huge. Um, you know, a lot more and more people are going to the, you know, the, uh, GPS units for tracking dogs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm from the old school. Incidentally, I don't do that, but uh, I I understand that there's a younger generation that has really really been brought up on that, and that's what they that's what they like. So I mean, there's a lot of innovations that are coming out there, and quite honestly, it's difficult to keep track of it sometimes. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Well, not even keep track of it. It's kind of hard to use them unless you really practice. But you're absolutely right, and and I'm I'm a big believer. So you can have your bells. Um, I I need I need a bill with a, a bell with about a 400 yard range and that ain't going to happen. So no. <laughs> uh, So we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of uptick in sales there. Yeah. In the yeah. in the e-collar market and uh, and they're always very strong and uh, there's not really anything that's really new and novel coming out. I yeah. Mean, there are a number of new uh, hunting vests that are out there. We find that people now are going more to a hunting pack style mm-hmm. type vest. Um, that's what they prefer. And again, I'm saying that that's, you know, they're, they're getting away from the old, you know, I got my old wax cotton vest and, you know, that's it. So now they want to carry water and mm-hmm. have a pocket for their GPS and this. And, and that's fine. I think it's great because, you know, you have a lot of these hunters will take off and they'll be gone for a day. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, and uh, and that's you know so we're seeing some changes there, uh, but other than that, it doesn't change that dramatically, in my opinion. What about uh, speaking of the old standbys? And you know, yeah, I'm a big believer in some of those uh, those novel or innovative solutions to some of the problems, including carrying a lot of water. But uh, day in and day out, uh, what are the things that you go back to? Whether it's that old wax cotton vest or something else that you always carry with you when you're on a rough grouse or a, a woodcock hunt. Uh, what's on your short list? Well, as crazy as it may seem, here's a couple of things that I would carry with me. I'm on a rough grouse hunt, uh, and if I, and particularly even if I know the area, uh, number one, obviously, I always carry a, a basic first aid kit, mm-hmm. and I carry a quick spot, uh, which will stop arterial bleeding. 
Uh, I always carry a number of those packages. Yeah. Uh, along with, I believe it or not, a little honey in case a dog became hypoglycemic. Um, and last but not least, um, it's a very small unit. I don't, we don't sell them, but uh, it's, it's almost like pliers, and that is to um, free a dog from a corner bear trap should it ever happen. Yeah, yeah. Describe. It, uh, it's infrequent. Pardon me? Go ahead. Describe what it is. Well, it almost looks like a, it's a long, it's probably about 12 inches long. Mm-hmm. It's got, uh, it's, if you envision pliers. Yeah. Uh, but it has two ends, and what you do is you have to be able to compress that spring yeah. uh, on there and then flip the safety safety catch, which frees the, that gets at least half of the dog's neck out, or it could be a leg. Mm-hmm. But what you don't want is a, is a neck. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that could be death within within minutes. But it's rare that that happens, but I always carry them, particularly in areas that I don't know. I don't know the area where I'm grouse hunting or woodcock hunting. Yep. Uh, it's, 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 you know, to me, and it, it does happen, but it's it's rare, but, boy, I'd rather have one of those with me. So it, it gets dragged along, along with the everything else, uh, you know, the basic knife and um who knows what else I might stick in there? Sure. I ended up, you know, I figured I got to train with that thing. I said, waste fifteen more pounds. <laughs> <laughs> we were having that debate a few nights ago about how much our vest weighs before we put a dang bird in it. it yeah. it's too much. But you know, yeah. water's heavy. So, uh, well, you know, of course, the water comes along. All the time. Yeah. Unless you're in an area where you have a lot of water. Yeah. So, yeah. I've heard about those you know, places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um, we've talked about, uh, the industry, we've talked about some products, we've talked about your, your passions in that world and other worlds that are, um, you know, you're affecting very positively. Uh, if we could close it out with just one hunting tip, you know, we're all trying to be better hunters out there, whether it's how you handle a dog or where you go or, you know, or anything else, what's the one thing that bubbles to the top that you would want to tell everybody else who's trying to be a better bird hunter? There's one thing is first and foremost, and um, I have to tell myself all the time, and I always forget, but you have to tell yourself all the time, the number one thing is trust your dog. Mm-hmm. And I always trust their nose. I, Scott, I can't tell you how many times I have been burned by saying, there is nothing there, there is nothing there, and sure enough, a, a grouse comes boiling out of there, or a woodcock comes up, you know, and you're caught there flat-footed with your shotgun broken open or something like that. And that, I mean, that to me is the biggest thing. Trust your dog's nose. Amen. That will not let you down at the end of the day. Uh, absolutely. I've learned that the hard way myself. Any number of times i'm a slow learner but thank you for that thank you for uh for helping us out here with information of all sorts terry wilson is the proprietor of ugly dog hunting company learn more about them at uglydoghunting.com they vet all this stuff they know what they're talking about if you can find it on his website you can bet that they've tried it and endorse it Terry, thanks again for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Great, Scott. Good to talk to you. Thank you. And you all stick around. We've got a lot more, including your two cents worth, on the question about how often and why you might shoot a limit of birds. 
you'll have to explain to me how that all works because I haven't done that in a long time. But we'll also cover some other things in the way of events coming up. So uh, stick around right after these two messages. The first sageandbreaker.com these guys are hardcore hunters over there so that their stuff like terry's stuff is all about uh tried and true sageandbreaker.com is all about gun cleaning and gun care gear whether it's how you carry it how you store it how you uh clean it or do any sort of gunsmithing. They've got tools, among other things, and a great inventory of videos so you can learn how to take care of your gun the right way, very well produced and very informational. Everything from a bore cleaning kit to their spray-on CLP, even a new gun case for your shot. You got a good gun? You need a good gun case. All heirloom quality. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And you know, more dogs ride in a Roughland kennel than any other performance kennel. There's a reason for that. First off, hey, no assembly required. No nuts, bolts, or anything like that. You take it out of the box, put it in your truck, strap it down, and your dog is good to go, literally. Rufflandkennels.com, R-U-F-F, landkennels.com. Learn more about the new colors all the accessories i'm carrying the water already i've got a storage tray as well it's all available for your perusal at roughlandkennels.com Well, usually when I talk to this guy, we're both passing like ships in the night at the SHOT Show or Pheasant Fest or something like that. It's great to have the chance to discuss a little bit more detail about what he does and what they do over there. Carl Gunzer is the director of the Sporting Dog Group at Nestle Purina Pet Care, i.e. Pro Plan, everybody. So if you have a question about that dog food or any of the other things they're doing over there, you've got the guy right here. So let's get started. Carl, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. This uh, I've been looking forward to, to visiting with you. Same here for a whole bunch of reasons since, uh, well, actually, I saw you since you moved back to Colorado. So I'm glad you're settled in over there. But, um, you know, beyond all that, uh, let's start with some of your other background. You've got a varied and fascinating uh, CV, as they say in English. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even sure what, how, to, how to say that, so I'm glad we can abbreviate it. <laughs> Yeah, I've kind of been a little bit all over the country, you know, for for years I worked in, um, you know, the hunting and <clears throat> outdoor field, worked for the National Rifle Association, worked for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and then just got um, kind of head over heel over the dogs. And then uh, I had my own uh, retriever field trial training business for 20-some years and was between Montana and Texas and all over the country um, competing and field trials and then about 10 years ago um made the move to purina and have been there since kind of um heading up purina support <clears throat> of sporting dog events um you know or support of conservation organizations well, like we talked about pheasants forever quail forever um 
Rough Grouse Society, Ducks Unlimited, and kind of manage those partnerships and, and a lot of our outdoor media stuff. Yeah, in fact, it's it, it, I've watched you develop over the years. I remember when you came on board at Purina, and uh, and it was very exciting for you. And and of course, you know, our, we're good friends with folks like Bob West over there and Steve Ooh. Remspecker back in the day. That's right. All those guys are, you know, they're they're all, you know, almost fond memories anymore. I see Steve once in a while, but that's about it. Um, and then Bob, Bob's still writing for the same magazines I write for most of the time. <laughs> But Bob's like the Energizer Bunny. Oh God, he, he is. Never quit. I, I don't. Bob. I don't understand. I hope I'm. God, he must be like 112 years old by now. I think. <laughs> I think. I think he invented dog food. <laughs> Careful, he may be listening. <laughs> but, uh, so, so what? What got you into the bird dog world? I mean, I could tell my story, but you tell me your story. Yeah. I mean, getting going from all those other things to bird dogs. Yeah. Well, you know, I. That was really, honestly, my first love. Um, you know, I grew up in, in Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay and, you know, was an avid waterfowler. Um, you know, we'd hunt some, a few, there's a, actually we were a few wild quail and, and uh, of course, doves and things like that there too. And, um, you know, just kind of grew up uh, hunting and, and playing around with dogs. And uh, I started messing around and training dogs when I was like 13 years old. Um, you know, my dad bought a, I don't know if you remember if you're a baseball fan, uh, Catfish Hunter was a pitcher, pitcher. Mm -hmm. and um, he had a litter of puppies, and uh, we got a, a puppy from the, the baseball player, Catfish Hunter, <laughs> and uh, I was like 13, and my dad uh, bought the puppy and then bought me the book, um, Hey Pup, Fetch It Up by Bill Tarrant, and I basically just read that book and trained the dog like so many people did with, um, you know, the Richard Walters books, but for me it was, you know, Hey Pup, Fetch It Up. And that really started, you know, kind of set the hook right then. I Even through college, I always had a, uh, a Labrador retriever that I would train and play around with hunt tests. And, um, and then when I moved to um, Missoula with the Up Foundation, um, I just kind of landed with a, a bunch of field trialers out there that took me under their wing. And um, I found out that my dog was not field trial quality. So then, you know, bought another dog and, you know, just like, almost everybody else right you, you just get going down that rabbit hole and pretty soon it's a free fall and next thing you know you've got you know 10 dogs and you know just uh so that's kind of how it started well yeah i could uh, well there, there is no 12-step program yet carl i can guarantee you but but i i'm looking yeah. for it and i hope i never find it you know it's interesting uh missoula <laughs> what the heck but you're not the first person who said there's a really active retriever trial community out there why yeah well it's you know it's one of those things where you know it, it takes a village sort of to train a, a field trial retriever you know you have to have the the grounds the people the property the clubs the training and you know western montana especially um north missoula up in the mission valley which is where i based out of um it's really conducive you know training grounds oh. uh, lots of prairie pothole kind of stuff um and um I, I think you know that the whole west there um so if you go over to seattle area you know there was obviously a, a big population base and a lot of trainers and events there and it just kind of migrated across and and there would be a a field trial in every you know uh boise pocatello salt lake missoula billings um 
uh, not Bozeman, uh, Butte, and then right over to Spokane. So there's just kind of a little circuit up there in the Northwest that, you know, you could pretty much run a field trial every weekend within a six to eight hour drive. And nice. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I always look at, you know, when I came here to Bend, Oregon uh, and and latched onto the wire hair world, uh, all of a sudden, all the folks I knew in that world were retired firefighters from the Bay Area of California. And so yeah. so there are, there are these migratory patterns of various sorts out there that for some reason just take place. And and you you were the beneficiary of one of those. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And the same thing happens in the South. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Got, you know, you go down to uh, Boston, Georgia, that area, you know, there's a concentration of trainers. If you go down around, you know, Giddings, Texas, there's a concentration of trainers. And um, and then when I lived in Montana for a while, uh, I worked for a guy down Maine. We would go down to the desert, um, kind of down there around Brawley, Calipatria, um, just on the Arizona border mm-hmm. and winter down there just to get away from the cold for you know a couple months. I'll never forget Calipatria. I used to drive between <laughs> between there and uh, L.A. a lot, <laughs> and uh, never ate a date on the way through there, which is like apparently crazy. That's all they do is grow dates down there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, not the most scenic part of the world in my book, but no, uh, it has no. its own beauty. But um, yeah, the yeah. beauty is you're going somewhere more fun. Uh, right. Right. Well, tell me about your hunting these days. What are you doing uh, now? Well, you know, honestly, it's the first time in my life that I actually don't own a Labrador Retriever. But um, I, I, it's sort of like having a boat. You know, the the, the only thing better than having a boat is having a friend with a boat. Yeah, um, yeah. That's kind of the way it is now. I've got a, a lot of friends that I still hunt with. Uh, some of the people you just named, you know, Keith Shop and Steve Becker and those guys that have great dogs. And so we still hunt together. And, um, you know, Western Colorado – I've only been here a year, um, so I'm still kind of, you know, finding my way around as far as the birds. But, you know, there's healthy populations of waterfowl around Delta here. And and then, um, you know, a few quail and chucker I've found. I haven't hunted them yet, but I'm I'm kind of, uh, you know, doing my onyx thing here. And uh, I've got a few X's on the map. I found some public land and I've spotted a few birds. So, um, so I'll chase those this year. And then... Uh, and now getting back into big game hunting a little bit, you know, that I don't have quite so many dogs. I'm not opposed to uh, chasing a deer or an elk, too. Well, I don't blame you, and you're, and you're in the right country for that as well. You know, over the years, you've you've been on a yeah, – whether it's with, uh, you know, somebody who has incredible dogs like Steve Rensbecker, who's got you know, DKs that are world-class, uh, or anybody else, what, what have been some of the highlights of your hunting life? You know, wow, that – so one of my favorite hunts I've ever been on, and I, I mentioned it to you, I think, the other day briefly, is um, not too far from you. Um, I went with um, uh, some folks from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I don't know if you know Brad. Um, I don't know why I'm blanking on Brad's last name right now. Um, he invited me to go out to western Idaho and chase um, you know, California quail, pheasants, and chucker mm-hmm. and uh, it was a quick hunt over there um just kind of south and west of boise um and uh it was amazing i mean we uh we got limits of quail pretty much every day um we shot a few pheasant and we we literally got two chucker and you know the the joke is you know your first one's for fun the rest are for revenge and you know i kind of got my chucker i got a picture with it and i i it was uh 
it was like shooting an elk or something. You know, we worked so hard that day. We got snowed on. Um, oh, they were telling me, you know, they're like, oh, it's not that cold out there. You don't need to worry and bring, you know, a bunch of clothes. It was, uh, I can't remember. It was probably in November, but. Okay. Also, yeah, these guys are from Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. It was like 10 degrees and snowing and blowing and just, you know, it was uh, it was cold. But, God, we just had an amazing hunt. And that was really the, um, probably one of my favorite bird hunts ever. Um, what, what, what was it about that? Because I'm, you know, I've turned down that hunt twice and I'm regretting it. And don't do it. <laughs> I know. Tell, tell me why I need to say yes <laughs> next time. Well, it's, you know, as with most hunting trips, um, you know, the birds are part of it, but only part of it. You know, the beauty of that country and the diversity to go from, you know, farming to kind of that lowland scrub brush that holds all the quail um, to river bottoms with pheasants in them and then to the the um, mountains would be the wrong word. They felt like mountains when we were climbing up, mm-hmm, but the, mm-hmm. the terrain that the chucker were in, you know, those big sweeping sagebrush hills. Um, I think that was what was so unique. You know, I, it was the diversity of terrain and birds and habitat. Um, and then of course the last things the people, you know, we had a great time. So, um, yeah, that was a, a really fun trip. Um, yeah. The, that country is excellent. It's just the other side of the border for me. And, uh, right. and I, and I spend a lot of time on this side of that river that you were probably near, yeah. um, but I do need to get over to the other side. In fact, I need to, I need to start reaching out on that. I my the guy I get most of my dogs from over the years, uh, is in that country and yeah. Hey, as many dogs as I bought and sold for him, he should be taking me out there. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and we were there, I'm, I'm sure those populations probably, um, you know, boom a little bit and bust. I don't know. You know, I, I did quite a bit of quail hunting in Texas and, and they can be super cyclical there. You know, we mm-hmm. had those great years um, a few years ago with a lot of bad years in between where you just don't even hunt because you don't have really huntable populations. And then you blink and all of a sudden there's, you know, 25 cubby days. But um, I, I don't know if it was always that way, but the quail numbers out there were tremendous. And uh, those California quail are fun to hunt. You know, they, they run until they don't run. And then they hold, you know, and come out under your feet. So it's kind of a, a fun you know, a, f- a fun bird to hunt. Oh, so. uh, no, I agree. I mean, that's, uh, be- uh, in fact, this, this season I'm, I'm starting my personal finally after so many years study of Valley quail, um, done the same with, with chuckers. And of course with sharp tails over the years and, and this uh-huh. year valleys are my thing. So we're, we're, we're getting, uh, you know, getting, putting our X's on the map as well and trying to get some places together that that i haven't been to before and, and do more of that hell i got them in my backyard almost every day right and uh, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you can learn even those domestic you know the home covey that you're not allowed to shoot you could still learn a lot from them and i i really am and it's fascinating they you know they they talk a lot more than you think they do. And, and I'm lucky enough because I can get up close to them, not just there, but on the other side of the fence in the, in, you know, on federal land, they talk a lot and they have a vo- vocabulary that's a lot richer than I ever thought it was because I can now get up close enough within hearing distance, within earshot of these things. So I bet they do. I think, I think all these birds do, you know, I've spent more and more time studying turkeys and being around turkeys and they have so many different little, you know, um, I don't know, 
variations to their little clucks and putts and purrs and all yeah. that stuff. It's really quite amazing, and I, I'm sure quail is even more so. Yeah, so uh, I'll let you know. I'll write. I'll write that story yeah. in a couple of years for somebody. Um, but in the meanwhile, uh, yeah, I can I can understand why that that Southwest Idaho hunt was so appealing to you. It's yeah. it's the country that I love. I write about it a lot. I get there whenever yeah. I can, which is a lot. And um, glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks, yeah. and and come back anytime and make sure and bring your visa card. Spend yeah. all, all your money in our part of the country. Come, come to the uh, come to the Oregon side. And I'll <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, um, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. Carl Gunzer is my guest. He's the director of the Sporting Dog Group for Nestle Purina, and we all know that as Pro Plan. Let's let's talk a little. Oh, I'm Scott Linden, by the way. I'm the host. Um, Carl, let's talk a little bit about uh, dog food. And and if anybody knows you at all in this world, it's for that brand that I just mentioned, ProPlan. But there's a lot more to ProPlan than just that name. And then there's a lot more to Purina and sporting dogs than just dog food. So let's get into a couple of those things, but I'll start with a story. So I'm going to the um, Outdoor Writers Association uh, convention many many years ago because i was going to give a speech and and the guy next to me turns out to be somebody you know very well or and uh and i said where are you where are you going he said oh i'm going to this thing i'm going to talk to outdoor i said who are yeah now we got to talk and he introduced the first uh, i'll call it the power bar for dogs oh all right and um and uh, so i went to that talk as well come on what's his name he's the veterinarian up in uh, oh, arlie Alaska. reynolds thank you yeah, yeah okay so yeah. arlie and bob are up there giving that talk and yeah. uh and everybody's pretty st- stoked about it you know i've been for years i'd been hoping for something like this and and so i got up in the middle of that talk when it was question time and i said arlie bob most important question of all what does it taste like and they couldn't tell me Really? <laughs> you haven't had any yet <laughs> but anyway had some good fun with it but again yeah. and and i know that's been uh, that thing is uh, you know ancient history and other things have come along since but tell us what's what's up in the in the world purina and sporting dog nutrition yeah, yeah. well you know and, and i'll talk about that power bar for a second that was a um that one was sort of a shame you know it was yeah. uh yeah it never it, it was co-manufactured. Purina doesn't have manufacturing to make uh, that product. It, I think it was maybe ConAgra or another company, uh, you know, that makes, you know, power bars for people or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. The, the cost of that, getting that produced and making it, it just, you know, it, it got, it was too high. It couldn't, um, it just didn't work, right? Yeah, didn't yeah. Enough sales to, to make it worth you know, us building equipment to do it or continuing the product, but it really was a great product. It's a, you know, basically a glycogen replacement. And yeah. I'm sure there's probably a few other products on the market now that, you know, have taken a little of that space, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, new stuff, uh, you know, there's, it's a, it's a huge continuation of science. You know, there's always something new that we're learning about. And a lot of it, you know, bridges over from human medicine. I think that's one of the great things about, Purina being associated with Nestle is we kind of get the benefit of of innovations in human food, um, human uh, nutrition, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. vice versa. You know, um, 
I think right now, probably one of the biggest uh, frontiers everyone is talking about is probiotics yeah. and adding probiotics to the formulas. For years, it was impossible to do so because basically, you know, you live bacteria would get cooked in the process of making the food, you know, and, and they had to kind of figure out how to micro encapsulate it so it could live and, you know, put it on at the end. And, uh, but now the technology is there. So, um, you know, that's been probably one of the, um, or one of the, you know, biggest new things in, in the last 10 years is, is different probiotics and what they do. And even some, some of these probiotics that have a calming effect for dogs, you know, we have a, a product called common care, which does reduce anxiety in dogs through a probiotic. Um, so instead of a drug, um, it can really help dogs through, uh, um, I was called a vagal nerve, but there's a, there's a nerve from the gut to the brain, you know, and, um, you can affect how people think just probably like if you, you know, if you, everyone says, well, how does what you eat affect your brain? And I said, well, did you ever give your, you know, kids caffeine and sugar or whatever, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, you can affect the brain through what's in your stomach. So, um, uh, that's probably one of the newest things, you know, um, I think probably everyone has seen, um, you know, the industry, because of COVID, sort of post-COVID, there was a huge explosion of dogs, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so the industry in general has really been struggling to meet demand over the last uh, couple of years, not just Purina, but really all the, all the man major manufacturing brands. Um, we have two um, pet food factories under construction right now, um, one in uh, Ohio and one in Georgia. And uh, we hadn't built a new uh, manufacturing facility in probably 20 years, and now we have two of them. Wow. You know, we have 12 dry plants in the, throughout the country right now, and, and so we're we're adding. So, uh, you know, you've seen shelves that were, you know, half empty, and, um, of course, the, all the supply chain issues hits the dog food companies just as it does any, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, manufacturing. So, um, so it's been challenging, and the costs have been – rising lately um hopefully that's stabilizing a little bit but uh um yeah it's been it's been good for business but a, a difficult environment to operate in you know with um, oh yeah yeah costs and transportation and uh, supply chain things well you mentioned supply chain and we we don't need to belabor that point but what you know one fascinating aspect of that and tell me you know, just give me a reality check everybody i know in the cattle business is getting rid of their cows does that help you guys <laughs> um you know I, I we probably use i would imagine probably less um beef protein yeah, than other yeah. sources but we do use it and especially in the fat side so, oh yeah um, yeah yeah beef fat is is usually the best fat you know it's uh i can't i'm not a nutritionist but i can tell you it's probably the most stable of the fats more so than you know pork or, or chicken or any of that um and we use a lot of that so um yes it affects all of the protein costs have been rising um you know here's a, a little known fact you know like 70 percent 60 or 70 percent of the world's sunflower oil is produced in russia and ukraine Oh wow! We use a lot of sunflower oil in our formulas. Now we buy most of it here, but it's a worldwide commodity, as are most commodities. So, mm -hmm. um, so all of that gets affected. And you know, at one point we we're wondering if we we're going to have to start reformulating um, some different um, formulas because 
you know, we may not be able to get sunflower oil in, next year. Yeah. But unfortunately, we've got enough contracted. I think we're in good shape. But it's just, uh, you know, things that you never think of <clears throat> just seems all of a sudden how it's it's all related, you know. Yeah, and it's, I, I had a discussion just a few nights ago with somebody about uh, what are you paying for dog food these days? And and I was uh, flabbergasted to find out what you know, what it costs now. I yep. They just take it out of my credit card, so I don't even know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably better off that like way. Most people will say, oh, my wife buys it. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, uh, you, know, what, you guys are doing some things in that I'll call it broadly the supplement field, whether it's Fortiflora or anything else. What else are, yep. what else are you doing in that world? Um, um, and then we're going to talk about how to use all this stuff. Yeah. Top secret. Can't tell you. No. Yeah, um, yeah, don't kill me so, afterwards. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fortiflora is, is an amazing product. I mean, it's probably the most prescribed um, probiotic in, in the industry. Um, and it just has amazing results for helping with digestive upset, uh, replenishing healthy gut bacteria. Um, I would say that's really our biggest um right now we are working on a few new supplements but i i think they're all kind of in the veterinary side mm-hmm. um, things to help with hydration and making keeping cats hydrated is a big deal you know and so there's um and i'm not a cat person so i can't give you a lot of details on it but you know there's products to try and help keep ha- cats hydrated um yeah. say that three times fast <laughs> so um <clears throat> the uh one of the great things about the fortiflora what i use it the most is when I'm traveling because it tastes good. And so, you know, you can mix it in with a little warm water and a bowl of food because sometimes some of these dogs, you know, they get on the road and, you know, with the change of everything, they're stressed and they don't eat as well. And then they get digestive upset. So I think it's a, a great product to use kind of on the road to, yeah. to get dogs. Yeah. I, I remember the first time somebody, well, probably Bob West, now that I think about it, said, you know, if because I have a, I, my current dog is the worst of the finicky feeders on the road, especially, uh, particularly after a hunt. And he said, well, try that. And I said, what, what, you know, it's just bacteria. No, it tastes great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's bacteria, again, he, he didn't tell me yeah, he tasted it, but, um, <laughs> uh, so it, it, it is, it's good for that too, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. But, but the right way to use it is not just the night after your last hunt. It's it's pre-hunt, isn't it? Pre-road that, trip. Absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. And and um, that's the real important thing. And and really, one of the best uses is uh, you know if a dog's been on a course of antibiotics or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, just kind of like we would take yogurt, but yogurt's really not the appropriate bacteria for the dog's digestive system, like you know Fortiflora. So um, that's a great use. Um, you know, you probably know Clyde Vetter. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. Sharpshooter uh, Kennels, short hairs. You know, he was the first one that said something to me about he puts all of his um, bitches on it when, they, uh, when they're when they bred, when they have their puppies, and especially during kind of that whelping time, you know, where the mother's cleaning up. After oh, all gosh, yeah. He said he saw a real difference by putting those females on Fortiflora and helping to not have them, you know, just – uh, keep them, you know, they, they're, they're heavily stressed, especially if they have a big litter and they're eating a lot and they're, you know, feeding the puppies and, and then cleaning up after them. It's just, it's heck on their systems. And he claims it really helps them to, you know, rebound after having the litter um, and keeps them healthy during the litter. You know, that is a, num- that is a great tip. 
and I love that idea. So uh, not yeah. that I'm going to be breeding any dogs anytime soon, but anybody who else, you, know, you think about the, all of that. And then the, the other, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm a pretty forward thinking guy. I'm going to give my dog yogurt. But you, you're saying that bacteria is not the right bacteria for a dog. Yeah, I don't, you know, I can't tell you 100% that it's, you know, I don't know that it's wrong or bad for them, but I don't think it's beneficial. Yeah like we would think you know um i i just don't know that it's the it's not the same you know whatever it is sf68 blah 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 long yeah, name yeah. that uh, is in fortiflora or other things that are proven to mm-hmm. be helpful mm-hmm. and i'm sure there's different bacteria and different uh yogurts and stuff like that so. all right so here's here's the one that you guys have probably answered a thousand times but you you, Carl Guns, Gunzer of, mm-hmm. of Purina, has never told Scott Linden about this. What's the what's the current thinking on corn? So, um, corn. Well, let me start with this thought: is that it's really the nutrients that are important in a diet, as opposed to just ingredients. Yeah. So, let's talk about protein for a second. You know, you could get protein from, you know beef, pork, chicken, whatever, you could get, um, you know, fat from any of those sources and you could get carbohydrates from, you know, corn, rice, all these different areas. So when they're formulating a diet, diet, they try to get all of these things, you know, protein, carbohydrates, fats in the proper quantities and qualities, and then look at all of the, you know, macro ingredients, you know, the nutrients, um, things like lysine and other things that are important to diet and you get those from different ingredients. So corn has a lot of great nutrients in it. Mm-hmm. Now would mm-hmm. corn in and of itself be a uh, complete and balanced diet? Absolutely not. But you know, when you need some of these different ingredients and elements in a diet, corn provides some of those. So um, I think corn, uh, uh, the germ, you know, that little, uh, part in the middle is like 60% protein. Now yeah. that's a, you know, it's a, a vegetable protein, not an animal protein, but it's still a protein, you know? So, um, there's nothing wrong with corn in a diet. Um, we use it in most all of our diets in different degrees and quantities. We have a few without corn, wheat, or soy for dogs. It might be sensitive, but the truth is dogs are much more likely to be sensitive to a protein like yeah. Yeah. chicken, you know, beef, lamb than they are to um corn wheat soy or those things but um it can happen um but again i think the real important thing is you know having a complete and balanced diet that's proven to have all the nutrients and everything that the dog needs um so Good. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Uh, Carl Gunzer is the director of the Sporting Dog Group for Nestle Purina Pet Care. That's the pro plan, folks. Um, Let's just set the record straight on protein and fat content for a performance dog. What what do you think the minimum should be, and should we be feeding that all year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, like all things, I would say – it probably varies a little bit depending on the dog, the dog's metabolism, their age, their activity level, all of that. Um, with that said, um, there are some real benefits to like a 30% protein, 20% fat diet. You know, dogs operate very efficiently on a high fat diet. You know, they, they burn fat. Everybody used to think, oh, my dog's going to run 
quote, hot on a high fat diet. High, actually, they run cooler on a higher fat diet than they do on a high carbohydrate diet. Um, you know, dogs digest fats easier and they do it better than they do um, carbohydrates, which, mm-hmm. you know, creates that insulin spike, you know, so they kind of, it has that insulin spike and then it goes down. So the carbs are kind of the quick burst of energy but they're not the long-term energy. So if you're going to run your dog all day, you know, you might think of it as the carbs are, are gone in half an hour, but they're running off fat for the next, you know, four hours type thing. So, um, so most people do, most dogs do best on like a higher protein, higher fat diet. Um, you know, the higher protein helps build lean muscles and helps with, um, oxygen metabolism in the muscles. So, the dog is more efficient, their lungs and everything else. So um, really, I think that's generally the best diet. Now, if a dog, um, you know, is not very active, uh, doesn't run, it's not running, you know, that hard or or just has a low metabolism and you get to where you can only feed them a couple cups of food because, you know, it's got a lot of fat and protein, well, then maybe, you know, a 26-16 type ratio would be better. but, you know, I don't ever really like going much below that, especially in protein, because there's a lot of research that shows higher levels of protein lead to fewer injuries, um, you know, muscle things. Who You just mentioned Arlie Reynolds did a, a study, and it had dogs on like a, a 24% protein diet, a 26, and then a 30, and, and maybe a 21%. It had dogs on different protein-level diets. And it was amazing the difference when they tracked injuries like, um, you know, either torn muscles or ligaments or things. The dogs on the higher protein diets had dramatically fewer um, performance injuries than the dogs on the low protein diets. Fascinating. Yeah, there's some real research that proves um, the benefit of protein. You know, can I just say this about research? Whenever we look for information when it comes to dog nutrition – you guys need a blue ribbon for that because you're doing more of that than everybody else put together. Thank you on behalf of every performance dog owner for doing the heavy lifting in the areas that are important to us when it comes to nutrition. So keep up the good work over there at Checkerboard Square or wherever you do it these days. You, yeah, you, know, you yeah, have a pretty cool facility somewhere out there. Practicing it. Yep. Yeah. Um, for a while there, I don't know, you still have kind of a, I, I don't know what to call it, a, you know, a campus with, uh, you know, per, you know, there was, there was arenas and uh, maybe some hunting ground and everything else out there somewhere in, in the St. Louis Metroplex. Wasn't that something that you guys did? Yeah. So, um, there's two things we have. So right in downtown St. Louis, they, and they do call it a campus and it, it would feel that way. There's a, um, oh, there's kind of one bigger office tower, but then there is our, um, pilot plant where we we don't make food for sale there but that's where we do our testing of you know different as we develop products is all done right there in downtown st louis there's a couple additional buildings i think purina has over eight thousand employees now throughout united well throughout the i think throughout north america and um the uh but then out in gray summit missouri we have the uh event center and so out there is kind of a um an event center where we hold different you know dog shows different competitions and events there's a herding field there's herding competitions and then there's a kind of a visitor center there for um for people and kids we have a lot of uh you know families come through there and 
meet the dogs and we have other animals out there for people to engage with. It's kind of a, an educational facility. And I think that's about 300 acres out there at that. Yeah. That property was shared with, um, you know, Purina mills. They kind of are across the border. I think, um, you know, there's always a lot of confusion. Um, and I don't remember the exact timing. I would say maybe it was early eighties where the business split and, you know, at that time, Ralston Purina. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All the you know dog and cat food products, and Purina Mills PMI um, took all the horse, cattle, livestock feeds. Um, and it seemed a little weird for the company to split, but it actually makes a little bit of sense. Um, they're very different distribution channels. So, yeah, yeah. You know, all the farm and feed stuff goes through, you know, kind of that channel. And most of the pet foods go through, you know, the go grocery mass pet specialty channel. So I, I never knew that. You know? <laughs> based, yeah, the business sort of split based on where it was sold. Well, I'm, you know, I'm supporting both sides of that deal because I'm buying, you know, pigeon checkers and things yeah. like that. And anybody else, you know, hell, you make goat chow and trout chow and who knows what else out there at the mills side of things. Um, That's right. Yeah. Uh, fascinating stuff and you know just let's let's conclude this part of our discussion about the industry itself on where you think it's going next i mean you look at this and whether it's supply chain or new ingredients or even distribution uh to the consumer where do you think uh you know with the will there be any big changes in the industry in the next couple of years that we should watch out for or be aware of you know I'll tell you, there's been, a, I'll, I'll start with a little bit of history. So in, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, Scott, there was probably, you know, a dozen or 20 different companies making dog food. You know, mm -hmm. the, the barrier to entry, you know, was distribution. Yeah. Like, hey, how do yeah. I get this product? And now I got to go fight with, you know, Mars and Purina to try and get a little bit of shelf at the grocery store or at the feed store. So there was a huge barrier to entry. Well, you know, the internet and direct to consumer DTC has changed all that. So where I would say, you know, we used to have, you know, a dozen brands, you know, that were sort of competing in the space. Now there's literally hundreds of brands. Yep. Um, you know, the barrier to entry has, has gone down. There are a lot of um, manufacturing facilities that will manufacture, you know, Hey, if you want to write up a recipe, Scott, you know, you could start your own dog food tomorrow. Um, you know, you could, uh, get it produced somewhere and distributed and, and um, not trying to give you an idea. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> no, saying. no, because mine yeah. would be pizza or macaroni and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so the barrier to entry has really uh, changed. So I think that's been the biggest change is, is uh, the distribution channels yeah. and the number of competitors. And, and I would say that will continue to change, you know, Purina, is kind of because it's a large company, our distribution goes all through, uh, you know, Purina doesn't sell direct. How about that? Yeah. So you can't, just like you can't call, you know, Coca-Cola and say, yeah, you know, hey, can I get a, a case of Coke from Coca-Cola? Coke is going to say, well, you know, you go to one of the stores that sells our products, you know. Well, Purina is the same way. We don't sell direct to consumer. Um, but, you know, the way the world is changing, um, who knows what the future is on that? Um, so we'll see. I, I think that's yeah. probably, you know, the, big changes in, in the way products are distrib distributed, you know, Amazon and all this online retail stuff has, uh, 
certainly changed all that. Yeah, absolutely. I remember watching that happen really early on in some other industries, the fly fishing business for one. I remember walking into a shop one day and talk, talk, talk. And he, he, I said, how you doing? He says, I'm very, very busy. I said, there's no one here. He says, we got, <laughs> we got four guys in the back filling online orders. I said, on what? <laughs> right, right. And yep. now everybody's doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. we'll see. Yeah. You, you can never yeah. say never in that world because at some point it would pencil out and, right, right. and the, the trade-off, the trade-off becomes, again, I've seen it in, in other industries. The trade-off is, okay, do we piss off our retailers? Yeah, no. And, and yeah. you know, that's right. So, um, yeah, that's all, you know, I, I guess, you know, who knows and time will tell what happens yeah. with all that, but, uh, yep. you know, the retailers are important part. And, you know, I think um, I'm a firm believer in the theory, you know, you do best what you do most. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I, I, you know, whether it's dogs or manufacturing and, and what Purina does best is, is make great dog food. And I think we can let other people do the sales of it, you know, but there you go. Um, those, those companies will do the online stuff for us. But, um, but I think that's probably, you know, yes, about sort of changes. And I think that's the biggest thing I've seen changing um you know another thing is is right now basically we make a product and you can choose from god knows there's enough different formulas but um that you know there's some there's a little bit of playing around with designed formulas that yeah. you know that you could say hey i want you know i want 32 percent protein and you know 19% fat and mm-hmm. I want this in my dog food and I don't like that in my dog food you know I don't like it so I don't think my dog likes it and, and um they can be made you know I mean it's kind of different but there's uh there's a few companies playing with that Purina's um doing some work with that I believe the product's called Just Right um <laughs> great that name you can, but... uh, you can basically order your own dog food you know online so I love um, it yeah so that's uh yeah there's lots of you know just wait everything changes you know yeah the more the more things stay the same they change that's right that's right well you said do best and one thing what what we want to do here at the upland nation podcast uh, better is uh, take care of our dogs in the field and in the kennel yeah when you're hunting getting ready for a hunt uh getting your dogs ready for a hunt or in the field that day what are some things that you do for your dogs that we probably don't but should benefit from um so i'm not a big proponent of feeding the day of the hunt so if we're going Mm -hmm. hunting i wouldn't feed them in the morning if if i did want to feed if i had a dog that was a really hard keeper and i didn't feel comfortable giving him you know a lot of food in one meal a day i would try and feed him you know at least a few hours before yeah um I would work them, you know, they just, just kind of like everybody says, you know, don't go swimming with a full stomach. Well, don't go hunting with a full stomach if you're a dog. So, um, I wouldn't feed the dog. I think hydration is always probably the most important thing that often gets overlooked. Um, it's pretty easy to not think about that and the dogs aren't thinking about it. You know, you sort of got to force them to drink half the time, you know, if they're out there working, especially upland hunting, you know, they come by, you offer them the water bottle and they, they look at it and go, no, nah, I think I'd rather go hunt. Well, you know, I think it's a smart move to say, no, 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 come back here. We're going to sit here for a minute and you're going to have a drink. And then yeah. you can go and kind of train them to stay hydrated. You ever bait your water for that? I've tried yeah. all sorts of stuff and it doesn't seem yeah. to work for me. Maybe I need your advice. What would yeah. what, what should I put in um, my dog's water? 
I'll, you know, that's that's a great segue. I'd try a little Fortiflora. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, you know, they usually say low sodium chicken broth. Yeah, um, but it know, ain't working that, for us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try that. I love that idea. And, and I'm the same way. I have the same, and I hunt in the desert most of the time. Yeah. You think yeah. the dog would figure it out. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, the best piece of advice, I think, um, I got, I learned from Tom Dock and quite a while ago, or maybe he was the first person I heard say it, but yeah, he doesn't have an original idea in his head. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. No. Hey, Tom, I love you. I love yeah. you. Thanks uh, for letting me crash your birthday party yeah. a few years ago. <laughs> Tom, Tom always says, um, when you go hunting, the last thing you take out of the car should be your dog. Yeah. And when you're done hunting, the first thing you put up should be your dog. And, and that's really good advice because I see it so often. People pull up to that uh, parking area and, you know, the dogs are excited. So people let them out and their dogs are running around and, you know, you're getting your, your clothes and your gun and your shells and making sure you got everything you want. And meanwhile, your dog is off, you know, eating a chicken bone or worse yet, running across the highway or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, before, don't let that dog out until it's time to walk away from that truck and, and go chase birds. Um, same thing when you're done, when you get back. If, Love it. if the dog's too hot, you know, tie him up there for a minute. Just don't yeah. let him, because by the fact that you drove to wherever you're hunting, that means you're in an area that cars come by and it's, uh, you know, far more dogs are hurt a field that way than I think anything else. So oh, that's the probably the best piece of advice I try to, yeah and and tom thanks for reminding all of us about that and uh carl thanks for reminding us about what tom reminded you about yeah. <laughs> absolutely and can i just amplify on this again thank you for doing so much of the research in this world but i lost a dog to uh stomach twist many years ago not because i yeah. fed the day of a hunt but right. uh, just a sheer freak accident yeah. but that's one of the risks when you feed the morning of a hunt but there are some much more valuable selfish reasons not to feed tell us a little bit about what what it, how it affects a dog's performance in the field when they have a full gi tract yeah sure so well one is obviously just they're carrying that extra weight around mm -hmm. sloshing their stomach um but also you know physically digestion um causes heat you know just like you warm yourself up by eating something well you know the dog starts the digestive processes two things happen one is it's building heat in the dog in order to digest the food and the other is it's taking blood and and sending blood you know to the stomach and the the gi tract to do the the digestion well that's that's blood that's not you know circulating and and carrying oxygen to muscles and that so um so really uh you know, and then te what tends to happen is that then causes diarrhea. So not only did they not get any benefit of the food that you put in their stomach, now you've actually hurt the process because you get a dog with diarrhea, and if that becomes you know more severe colitis, then they're not digesting anything. You know, they're they're getting an inflamed GI, and and uh, now you're fighting diarrhea for a couple of days, so you're going the wrong way. So um, you know, the way to think of it really is that. Um, that food doesn't do your dog any good until it's, you know, completely broken down. It's in the muscles and it is available for use. And that takes, you know, up to 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. That be converted. You know what I mean? It's, it's broken down and the, and the, um, 
you know, by having food in the stomach, it's not doing that dog any good at all. And just like, uh, you know, the mushers, the, uh, the sled dog guys, and that's what Arlie, you know, yep, I guess yep. it was, he's not competing anymore, but you know, the mushers, they would try and feed, uh, 24 hours before the start of the race and then nothing. So yeah. they want a completely empty stomach when that race, not, not only empty stomach, but a whole, the whole GI tract. Yeah. The whole GI tract is clean. Um, you know, obviously, um, they're just carrying less mass. Everything is digested and it's, you know, available to be burned as opposed to, you know, bounce around in the gut. Well, it's been 125 episodes and finally the word diarrhea came up. Yeah. <laughs> And on that note, I think we'll turn you loose. We'll do this again. This has been so much fun. Carl Gunzer, he is the director of uh, the sporting dog group for Nestle Purina Pet Care, the ProPlan folks, Fortiflora folks. Thanks for all those tips, by the way. This is golden. This kind of discussion just helps everybody in one or a hundred ways. Um, Carl, thank you so much for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Have a great day thanks scott i sure enjoyed it let's uh let's let's do this in the field someday um i'll send you an email on that i got an idea all right thanks a bunch okay (laughs) bye-bye and everybody else we still got a little bit more thanks for sticking with us here on the upland nation podcast your two cents worth how often do you shoot a limit i'm going to share some of your thoughts on that from our social media pages and in the meanwhile uh let's cover a little bit of commercial ground here first we're brought to you in part by legacysports.com slash pointer yeah that's their shotgun brand and and you know we took a lesson over at mid valley clays a while back and my buddy tom was shooting his one of his semi-autos and legacy uh sports has a whole bunch of semi-automatic guns all gas operated some with cerakote finishes if you like they've got a traditional walnut stock for those of you who like that or you can even get yourself a black synthetic stock in 12 or 20 gauge learn more about all the varieties of shotguns at legacysports.com slash pointer yeah they're a work of art at a price that's a thing of beauty and uh, then one more time let me just remind you if you want to learn more about this what a great cause my friends at pheasant bonanza out in tecama nebraska are putting on an event to raise funds for camo that is canine adoption and mentoring outdoors and they're doing a few other uh benefits uh groups as well out there the deadline to sign up for that event which is called the bird Burt county bird bounty deadline is october 1st so get in on that learn more about what it's all about and what you get for that fundraiser it's a three-day affair you're going to shoot waterfowl you're going to shoot upland you're going to shoot sporting clays or social events lodging is included if you're a gambler there's a calcutta learn more at k-a-m-o-i-n-c dot org slash bird dash bounty camo dot org good luck and uh let's uh let's go to the facebook pages where i asked well i asked and thank you all great responses always great responses 
I ask questions on uh, on the social media pages about things that interest me, intrigue me, perplex me, and you always have great answers there. Let's just take a, a look at a few of those. The question again: How often do you actually shoot a limit? Uh, and some incredible stuff. Eric Copang says, "When I'm on a trip out of state and I went there to hunt all day, it's relatively easy to shoot a limit." Eric, you're a better shooter than me, I guess especially when all the grouse are included in the total. But generally, I'm satisfied with a good walk and watching my dog show off her skills. Yeah, yeah. well, you got it right. And I, I think everybody on this podcast would agree. Joel Witt, much the same. He hardly ever shoots a limit. Doesn't matter. For me, it's all about the dogs. John Hyde, maybe you'll shoot one uh, soon. It's been a while, he says, since he shot a limit of pheasants. It's about great dog work and hard-won harvest. Man, that's, I ought to write that down. Hard-won harvest. That ought to be a bumper sticker for all of us who really care about the dog work. Robert Murphy, it all depends on how many birds I want to clean. <laughs> I remember shooting a bunch of snow geese many, many years ago and then finding out later that we had to pluck them all. Hard to do when your fingers are numb. Yvonne Shire, I think that's how I'm going to pronounce it. When I was younger, the more birds was the better, but now with age, the pleasure of seeing the dog working is more important. I've had this discussion before. Maybe you have too. You know, uh, to, the the best analogy is the one I use a lot in fly fishing. You know, when you first learn to fly fish, you want to catch a fish, any fish, it doesn't matter. Then you want to catch a lot of fish. Then you want to catch a big fish. Then, eh, doesn't matter anymore. That's not why I'm there. You feel that way? A lot of you do, apparently. Mike Jonas shoots a, a limit of pheasants about 50% of the time. Quail? Well, he, he says you can't even remember that. Seeing the birds, watching the dog work, retrieving every bird that does go down makes for a great day. Mike, couldn't have said it better. Thank you all for your responses. We'll, we'll revisit that down the road. I'm sure we will. Thank you again. All right. So um, let me just remind you one more time because we're getting a lot of interest and we're getting down to the wire on some aspects of it. Furfeathersfriends.com. Learn more about our little event. It's a big event and it's a little event. It's nationwide in that I want you to show off your dog to somebody who you haven't hunted with before. Spouse, child, friend, next door neighbor. Show off your dog. He's the vehicle for bringing a newcomer into our sport. Learn all about that and the chance to join us in Huron, South Dakota, if you like, at furfeathersfriends.com. Dot com. All the details there, including a lineup of what we're going to be doing when we are in Huron. A few social events here and there, but mainly just go out and hunt public ground and come back and trade notes and brag about our dogs. And the rest of you can brag about your shooting and make fun of my shooting as well. FurFeathersFriends.com Thank you all for listening. Thank you, um, Terry Wilson of Ugly Dog Hunting Company and Carl Gunzer of Nestle Purina Pet Care, the pro plan folks, for being guests on the show today. We learned a lot from both of you. Thanks to all of you who comment at social media platforms. Those who left ratings and reviews, you get an extra box of ammo in your Christmas stocking this year. 
We're all made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota, and FurFeathersFriends.com. Thanks again for listening. Until I see you in the field, I'll see you at the shooting range. I'm Scott Linden. 